Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello. The fashion for big history. Books that not only survey the rise and fall of humans in their societies, but also try to discern some order from within the chaos, has grown a great deal over recent years. And names like Niall Ferguson, Yuval Noah Hariri, Francis Fukuyama and Peter Frankopan are widely known and respected. But before them all, in the 1990s, Jared Diamond was publishing books that married biology, anthropology, ecology, linguistics and history and really set the pattern for the genre. His latest book, Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change, explores how seven countries, Finland, Japan, Chile, Indonesia, Germany, Australia, and America, have managed to cope with major crises in their history. Jared, welcome. Thank you, and it's always wonderful to be back in the UK and in London. Well, it's great to have you here, and as we were saying before we started off, it's a, a rather nice framing in the fact that you are in the UK in exactly the same day that your president has flown over. And we might touch on Mr Trump and questions of political compromise later on in our discussion. But I wanted to open with a general question about Upheaval, your new book. Can you tell us why you've written it and what your major idea behind it is? I wrote it for two reasons reflecting one major idea. The two reasons are that when I think back on the countries where I've lived um, in the last 60 years and where I speak the language and the countries that I know, know best, all of them have experienced political crises either just before, during, or after I was there. And it's not that correlation proves causation and that a visit by Jared Diamond provokes a crisis, but that most countries do go through crises. Crises either of being attacked by neighbors or threatened with attack or having an internal explosion, a coup d'etat, or having a more slowly unfolding rethink change of national identity. So those are the crises that I looked at. But then my wife, Marie, is a clinical psychologist who, during the first year of our marriage, was doing a specialty in an area of clinical psychology called crisis therapy. That's to help people deal with the personal crises that all of us go through, breakup of marriages or relationships, death of a loved one, setback to your career, health, or, or um, your finances. All of those crises provoke us or fail to provoke us to think about what did I do wrong? How did I get into this mess? How can I avoid making this mistake the next time? What about me is okay and what do I have to change? And so Marie would come home each week because some of these people were at risk of suicide. She had to figure out what are the outcome predictors? Who is dealing with their crisis and who is not? And as Marie talked about these things, I realized that those, those formulations or questions raise similar formulations of questions about national crises. For example, people acknowledge or they refuse to acknowledge that they're in a crisis, the US today. People accept responsibility and they don't blame others for the crisis. The US today, um, our leader does not accept responsibility, instead blames Mexico and Canada and China. Uh, People look to other people for help, emotional support, material help. Countries either 
have allies or they fail to have allies. So those are parallels, and it's that that framework of personal crises to look at national crises that makes this book distinctive. So you're using that model framework of personal to look through and at national crises, but I want to pick apart that word crisis because it seems to me there are two very different kinds of crisis. One is, if you like, imposed from without, and the other is generated from within. And so in your examples, Finland faces very significant crisis, which is generated almost entirely from its relationship with a massive and often very hostile sovereign power, the United USSR. Whereas countries like Chile or Indonesia, they have crises that are internally generated. Do countries therefore engage with the way engage with crises in the same way, depending on whether they're external or internal crises, or are there different, significantly different ways of engaging with them? There are some differences, but the, the dozen outcome predictors apply whether the provocation is an external cause, an attack or threatened attack, or whether the provocation is an internal explosion, just as for us as individuals, we may have a crisis provoked externally. Your wife comes in and says she wants a divorce, external provocation. Or you may have a crisis because it's a midlife, midlife crisis. You are recognizing that the way you've been spending your life is not what you want to do for the next 30 years. But all of those crises, whether they're external or internal, raise the same questions. Do you acknowledge that there's a crisis or do you not deny it? Do you accept responsibility and try to do something about it or retreat into poor me? Um, do you gain strength from recognizing that you survived previous crises? This isn't the first time somebody attacked you. This isn't the first time someone threatened to end your marriage. Um, and you recognize that you've gotten through a crisis before, so you can do it again this time. Um, in other words, the, the framework of the outcome predictors um, applies whether the crisis is triggered externally or internally, and also it applies whether the crisis is a sudden explosion or whether it seems to be a long-folding change, such as Australia's discarding its white British identity after World War II. That was a long time coming, but finally there, there were events that triggered it and there was an event that ended it. One of the factors within the 12 different individual and national coping strategies that you mentioned right at the outset and frequently return to is the parallel, as you draw it, between ego strength when it comes to the person and national identity when it comes to the nation. I think that's particularly interesting and relevant to our current context in the UK and I dare say in the US as well. Explain a little bit about how a strong sense of national identity, whatever that comprises of, helps nations get through crises. It's an interesting and complex question. Here is one of those cases where the parallel between personal crises and national crises is more of a metaphor than exact. When one talks about help, people get help from other people. Nations get help from allies. That's a close parallel. But people have something that psychologists recognize as ego strength, 
which is like self-confidence, but it's broader. It's a sense of yourself not being dependent on other people. Nations, of course, do not have ego strength. But nations do have something for which ego strength can serve as a metaphor, namely national identity. Just as ego strength is a sense of what makes you distinctive and what you're proud of. National identity is also a shared sense in a nation of what the nation, um, what makes the nation unique and what the nation is proud of. Britain is unique, and whether you're a descendant of William the Conqueror or a descendant of a 1948 immigrant from the West Indies, Britain is unique because of the Magna Carta, the long history of democracy, Shakespeare, the history of the most powerful empire the world has ever known. So those are, those are things that create a British national identity. But just as ego strength can be appropriate or excessive, if it's excessive, we speak of it as egoism or selfishness. It can be destructive. National identity can be excessive and destructive. Germany has a strong, positive national identity today um, surrounding the German language and German Germany's history and the arts and balancing of individual and community rights. But there are many who would say that Germany in the 1930s had too much ego strength, which meant Deutschland über alles and, and expansion and Lebensraum. So that national identity, unless it's tempered with a sense of realism, which is another point you make throughout the book, can become a hindrance rather than a halt, uh, rather than a, uh, a, a hindrance rather than a help. Um, but I'm, I'm particularly struck, and I want to kind of dig a little bit around your first two countries, Finland and Japan, partly because they're going to be a lot less familiar to a great many readers. Both of them suffer really significant external shocks that could have destroyed them. And yet, the way they persevere draws significantly on a deeply entrenched sense of who the people is through the language, through the culture, through a certain ethnic homogeneity. Are Finland and Japan um, unique in that regard, or is there something we can learn from them even if we're not as homogenous as a culture? Finland and Japan have especially strong national identities. Other countries, some have weaker national identities. For example, Indonesia. Indonesia became independent in 1949, and there are 700 different languages. Not surprisingly, Indonesia's national identity is more recent and weaker than the national identity of Finland, um, but it's still a national identity. In the case of Finland, this country of, it was then 4 million, and it's now 7 million, the Finnish language is spoken by nobody except Finns. It's an extremely difficult language. Nobody except Finns and a few crazy people like Jared Diamond attempts to learn the, the, the Finnish language. The Finnish people are proud of their language. Their oral epic, the Kalevala, they recite the Kalevala far more than British people recite Shakespeare. So Finns have a strong national identity. When Finland, when the Soviet Union issued ultimata against Finland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania caved in and allowed the Russians to station troops, which meant taking over the country and annexing. The Finns refused the Soviet ultimatum, although there were 170 million Russians and 3.9 million Finns. The Finns were prepared to fight for their national identity. And everybody thought that they were crazy and they would be creamed in two weeks. And instead, the Finns fought the Soviet Union virtually to a standstill. It was so painful and expensive for the Soviet Union that they 
stopped the war without taking over Finland. The Finns preserved their independence at a high cost, 100,000 Finns killed, essentially everybody in the country lost somebody, but their national identity was so strong they were willing to die for it. And their national identity is stronger than the national identity of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. So there's a real sense that they know what they're fighting for, they know what they're defending. That is the kind of thing that enables them to transcend crises. That's right. And also also Israel. I've made a couple of visits to Israel. And I remember one of my visits to Israel, there was a batch of young people, teenagers in military uniforms, with someone slightly older. And I asked what was going on. And, um, and it was a cemetery that they were at. And, and the, the older person said, these are young army recruits, and we're taking them to the cemetery so that they understand what they are fighting for. One of the reasons why talking specifically about an idea of national identity, self-evidently because the kind of self-reflection that breeds a crisis in Australia, the last of your six historical examples, I think is underway in many Western countries, Western European countries in North America at the moment, and a severe questioning of who are we as a people. And that leads us on to a second, I think, critical element, which is this question of compromise. If your sense of national identity is so strong that you're not willing to compromise or you want to get rid of dangerous third parties within your own country, you can degenerate into the kind of crisis that you saw in describing Chile and Indonesia. Compromise is sometimes seen as a dirty word. But I got very much the impression from the book that it was one of the things that, when dealt with judiciously, was absolutely necessary if countries did want to transcend crises. Compromise is essential to a democracy. In a dictatorship, no. In Nazi Germany, there was not compromise. But for a democracy to function, um, there can be neither a tyranny by the majority nor can there be paralysis imposed by the minority. That requires compromise. There are limits to compromise. The United States hit a limit to compromise with regards slavery and states' rights and the Civil War. We were willing to go to war, and in the Civil War, more Americans got killed than in all other wars in our history put together. Uh, we were not going to compromise about slavery on either side. Um, with that exception, though, the United States has always always compromised. That's, of course, an issue in, in Britain now. So who, who, are, who are we in Britain? Who are we in Japan? Who are we in the United States? Japan, Japan is the most homogeneous country in the first world. Japan is the Japanese. The Japan, Japanese are in general in agreement that we are not accepting foreigners. In the last three years, the number of refugees that Japan has admitted has been one refugee two years ago and two refugees three years ago. Japan pays a price, but that's their national identity. The United States at the opposite extreme. Every American is an immigrant, and we're an immigrant from all over the place. And we have, in the Los Angeles school system, there are 76 different, different languages. That's an extreme. Britain until the Second World War, Britain was relatively homogeneous. 
Then came your first large group of immigrants from the West Indies. Then came large group of Indians from uh, immigrants from India and Pakistan. And when I lived in Britain from 58 to 62, I moved here just at the time that Britain experienced its first race riots, Nottingham and Notting Hill. So Britain now is, is wrestling in Brexit with the question, who are we? Uh, are we the British people, the unmixed British people? One can say, you've already decided that. If, you, if any British people wanted to be unmixed, you've lost that battle because there are so many non-British people in the UK today. Given that there are so many non-British people, what now is Britain's identity? Can you get all people, regardless of when they immigrated to the UK, to say, we are proud of the Magna Carta and we may be derived from India and Pakistan, but we chose to come to this country and we share the values of this country. So as you rightly say, Brexit has exposed, I think is probably the right word for it, some very deep uh, national questions about who are we, but it's also thrown up some painful questions about the extent to which we are prepared to politically and possibly even culturally compromise to achieve some kind of end. I think it's worth just going back to this point about there are, as you've just said, proper limits to compromise. I was struck by Finland is prepared to make a great deal of compromises, such as allowing the Soviet Union to intervene in its democratic process. But when it engages the support of Nazi Germany, it refuses to acquiesce to demands to hand over Jews, doesn't it? So there are certain limits there to where Finland is prepared to compromise. Good point. The two limits were that Finland was prepared to reach some compromises with the Soviet Union, but not to be occupied. The, the Finns would rather die than lose their independence. And in fact, Finns did die. The Finnish soldiers who were on the islands flanking the Gulf of Finland were told, you're going to stay there. We're not going to take you off. Stay there and kill as many Russians as possible until you yourself are killed. They were they were expected to give their lives for, for Finnish independence. Uh, so that's an example of, of um, non-compromise. But also, particularly with regard to jewellery, I mean, there's, there's one thing about non-compromising when it's your own security at stake, but refusing to acquiesce to Nazi demands to hand over Jews within Finland was, I took from your book, a line that they weren't prepared to cross. That's right. So, so Finland, when one says that Finland, Finland allied itself with Nazi Germany. Growing up in World War II, I thought, thought of there being four Axis countries. There was Germany, Italy, Japan, and there was Finland. And I didn't understand why Finland was an Axis country until living there for a short time. Finland fought a horrible war against the Soviet Union. And then when Hitler invaded Russia, the Finns knew, we're not going to be permitted to remain neutral. Either we got to lie with them or we lie with them. Because if we lie with nobody, we're going to get occupied. So we got to make our choice. The Finns chose to ally with Nazi Germany because the Finns, like everybody else, expected Nazi Germany to defeat Russia. And also the Russians had taken away Finland's province of Karelia, which, not surprisingly, the Finns wanted back. And so the Finns, they, they described themselves as not being allies of Nazi Germany. They said, we are co-belligerents. We have no alliance. We're just fighting the same other side. But when the, Nazi, when the Nazi Germans made two demands on Finland, they wanted Finns to round up the Jews. No. And they wanted Finns to attack Leningrad. 
from the north while the Germans were attacking from the south? No. A consequence of that, a beneficial consequence, is that when at the end of this this second phase of the Soviet-Finnish war, the Soviets eventually broke through Finnish lines, and there was a question, what are the Soviets going to do with Finland? The Soviets remembered that when the Finns could have attacked Leningrad from the north, they didn't, and that was part of the reason why the Soviets did not attempt to take over all of them. So that's really important to emphasize that there are lines which you quite legitimately shouldn't cross, even if you rightly hold the idea that compromise is a good thing. You mentioned slavery in the US and um, Finland with regards and Finnish Jewry in the 1940s. That, of course, is not the problem we face at the moment. In fact, we're very much at the other end of the spectrum, whereby any form of political compromise is deemed, at least by many people, as a form of surrender. So let's hone in a little bit more on the contemporary political situation. And one of the points you make when you turn to the US in the final section of the book was that right the way up until quite recently, some deeply entrenched positions could still work with one another and to some extent co- collaborate. So um, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, as you're done from the, from, the, from the 1980s. But in the last 10 years or so, in the US specifically, but also more broadly, the willingness to compromise politically and to some extent culturally has seemed to evaporate somewhat. Why? It's true that political compromises clearly crashed. The most recent Congresses have passed fewer laws than any other Congress in modern American history. Why has political compromise crashed in the United States? There are immediate reasons that people cite, such as, such as niche media, instead of there being three television stations when I was a child in Boston, all of them aimed at everybody. My Los Angeles Tele Remote now has 499 stations, very specialized. There's a station for French food, and there's a station for East Coast basketball, as well, of course, of stations for conservative points of view and, uh, and of, of liberal points of view. Why the decline of compromise in the United States, not just in the political sphere, but other spheres? Unresolved question. My reading of it is that it's related to the decline of face-to-face communication throughout human history. I do my field work in the island of New Guinea, and in New Guinea, where people till recently were using stone tools, all conversation is or was face-to-face. You're three feet from a person, you look at them in the eyes, you read their body language, you smell them, you hear their sounds. They're a real living person. I have some inhibitions about screaming insults at you two feet away, but if you are words on a screen, and you're not a real person, it's easy to scream at words on a screen. So I see the decline of compromise generally, politically and socially, as related to the decline of face-to-face communication, which of course raises the question, why is it worse in the United States than in other countries when Italians and Japanese use cell phones as much as we do? My, my hypothesis is either these technologies, non-face-to-face, began in the United States, and it's only a matter of time before compromise breaks down in Britain and Italy and Japan as well, or it's that the United States has less social glue than Britain or Italy, because U.S. is much bigger, Americans move greater distances, 
friendships for Americans are more ephemeral because we move from the from the friends of our and there is a kind of cultural history of cultural individualism there that perhaps makes America more receptive to the fragmentation of media as well isn't there that's right there was the history of the frontier where you go out on the frontier you have your 160 acre homestead and there are the few people over there but you got to make your own way so the United States has a strong history of individualism much stronger than Britain or Britain or Japan or Germany. I don't think this is an incredibly important point because there's a lot of um, not technical in the political sense, but it, it, it's structural and um, there are major political issues here. But right at the heart of it is this question of recognizing the human in the other and seeing somebody as uh, a vulnerable, embodied person in the same way as I am or seeing them as a disembodied, aggressive set of words expressing a view on a page. And as soon as we switch from the former to the latter, we're dehumanising other people with whom we you know, share a physical environment and making the capacity for good politics, good agreements and good disagreements so much more difficult. It, it looks to me, I'm, for me it's, it's interesting being back in the UK for the first time in more than a year. It looks to me as if things have deteriorated significantly <laughs> in the UK as far as political, as far as the, the level of dis, discourse is concerned. Um, I do not see, among your political leaders at present, I do not see a single leader who is honest, compromising, doing things to bring the British people together, realistic, zero. I, I certainly wasn't pointing the finger there at you, believe me, I can, I can identify so much of what you said about US politics in the UK situation. There's um, another irony we mentioned right at the beginning that we're chatting at the more or less moment that um, Donald Trump is, is, is touching down for a very controversial state visit in which there'll be a great deal of protests. We're also speaking in the week that Theresa May will formally stand down as leader of the Conservative Party, although not a, a Prime Minister, largely because, as certainly she would put it, her attempted brokered deal with the European Union, a compromise deal, has been rejected by a Parliament that doesn't want to compromise, fundamentally won't compromise on whether we leave or whether we stay. So you could argue, and I'm not particularly making this point, but she would certainly argue that there was a compromise position there, but that it, 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 it broke down. And we're facing a situation in which not only are we questioning who we are, what our values are, and what our shared story is as a nation, but we're also losing the capacity to compromise with one another to achieve decision, to, to achieve um, political goals. That's true. Is there anything now that the British people can achieve broad consensus about with regard to to, to Brexit, um, are you stuck with the fact that fifty three percent may want a hard Brexit, and thirty five percent may want a soft Brexit, and eighteen percent or maybe it's fifty five percent want to remain? Uh, if, if there's slavery, either you've got slavery or you don't have slavery. There's no compromise, and either you get out of the European Union or you don't get out of the European Union. Those two extremes don't have a compromise. Um, you, but what you can do is stay in the European Union 
and work hard to change the European Union in ways that you want, but also in ways that many members of the European Union want. So that would be a compromise that might be, might be tolerable to the British people, but I don't hear noises David, about it. One that David Cameron tried to sell the British people three years ago and didn't, didn't do so well on it. I, I want to go and gravitate, because we're moving towards the end of our time together, towards that key question of you know, how then do we respond to these, this, this situation? But before I do so, um, I think it's worth making the point that whilst much of our discussion has been political, that divisiveness and lack of homogeneity and unwillingness to compromise has deep cultural roots. And one of the things that most shocked me, actually, from the, your book was when you said that this had been a problem that you personally had experienced. You've been repeatedly sued, threatened with lawsuits, verbally abused by scholars disagreeing with me. My lecture hosts have been forced to hire bodyguards to shield me from angry critics. That's astonishing. Why? Yeah, it is astonishing. So I began in academia. Um, my first research project I began in 1955. I've been in academia for 64 years now. And of course, in academia, there were arguments. Early in my career, I had arguments about the mechanism of water transport across the, across the gallbladder. Um, and I recall a meeting where I encountered someone whose views about the mechanism of water transport across the gallbladder disagreed with mine, and we stated our views at meetings, and then we went off on a vacation together, a wonderful vacation where we went to see fountains in Revo and Gervo Abbey. We took a vacation um, together. N nowadays, the, th the idea that I could take a vacation with someone who disagrees about my views about tribal warfare or my views about environmental damage in the past. Utterly impossible. My wife and I, we erected around our house in Los Angeles. We raised the fence and we have steel spikes on top of the fence because I was seriously concerned that angry anthropologists would come after us. At a talk that I gave in East Los Angeles, my host had to hire two bodyguards men in black suits with broad shoulders to deal with angry anthropologists. And I've been sued, I think, four times by anthropologists who disagreed about my views about tribal warfare. There's a nice irony there, isn't there, with the tribal warfare <laughs> point, certainly. Anthropologists being more tribal than the people that they study. But I come back to this question. It's part of the coarsening of public discourse, the deepening disagreements. But again, a lot of people will find that quite extraordinary. Is there any obvious reason why it's got so much more bad-tempered in, in a field that most people would hope, in fact, certainly presents itself, academia, as one of reasoned argument? In a broad sense, um, I, I connect this again to the decline in face-to-face -face communication. Uh, my, my friend Henry, who, whose views about the mechanism of water transport and the gallbladder were not shared by me. The two of us nevertheless had these arguments face to face and there was no email in those days. Whereas nowadays the anthropologists who disagree with me about tribal warfare and environmental damage, I haven't, I haven't met most of them in person ever. I experience them as angry words on my email. They experience me, they've never met, met me and never shown any desire to meet me except scaling the steel spikes in front of our house. So again, it's this dehumanisation point, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we've left ourselves at least three minutes now to talk about the solution to, <laughs> to these problems. Is it simply a question of, as it were, identifying, as you do in the book, where some of the problems lie? So where we've been talking about lack of cohesive, cohesive national identity, lack of willingness to compromise, and then 
reversing them, so encouraging more face-to-face, -face, more human contact? Are there other ways that we can address what seems to be a pretty kind of difficult, slippery slope before us? I'd suggest three things. A starting point is, is honesty, honesty about what's at stake. My British friends tell me that the Brexit alternatives have not been set out with honesty, that there's not frankness in recognizing the economic costs of Brexit. In the state of California, if we have a referendum, when we have a referendum put to the voters, and there are dozens of them every year, it is required that an impartial legislative analyst write an analysis of what's at stake in the referendum. Whereas with Brexit, there, there has not been an impartial statement of on the one hand, on the other That's one thing, lack of honesty. Um, second thing is the refusal in Britain to look at models. Looking at models is important for getting through personal crises, for getting through national crises. Referenda. Britain is not the first country in world history to hold referenda. Italy has had something like 70 referenda since World War II. The state of Wisconsin began referenda in the 1900s. And California, every year we have lots of referenda. So we, the, there's a lot of track record about how to run a referenda. There are some subjects that are appropriate for a referendum, like a simple issue of societal values. Italy has had referenda on whether to have abortion or divorce. Excellent subject for a referendum, uncomplicated. The subject, a subject about which not to have a referendum is a subject with really complicated economic consequences. That's what you have elected representatives for. You elect them and they crawl off into a corner and they spend months figuring out. So you do not put things with big economic consequences to the voters. Or if you do, then you have bars in California, um, referenda, or laws that have big economic consequences, there's a bar. You've got to get either 60 or 66 and two-thirds percent of the voters to approve of it if there's going to be a change. There's no way that you can produce a massive raise in taxes with 51.8 percent of the voters. So the Brexit referendum, astonishingly for the world's leader in democracy, the British did not look to other countries for how to run referenda. If you are going to have a second Brexit referendum, it's still the case that it's the wrong subject for referendum. But if you are going to have a referendum, at least you can do it well by learning from, from other countries. At least you can decide, what is the bar? Um, are we going to permit Brexit if there's 50.3% of voters in favor of it? Or do we require that anything major like this have at least 65% of the voters in favor of it? And will the government have impartial legislative analysts who will set out the arguments for the public five months ahead so that they can be debated. The third one is stressing the things that bring British people together instead of the things that fragment British people. There are plenty of things that fragment British people just as there are plenty of things that fragment American people. British people come from different places. They're derived from William the Conqueror, Caribbean immigrants, recent Eastern European immigrants. But you don't hear from Britain's political leaders today about what holds British people together. All British people derive advantages from having inherited the Magna Carta and your wonderful parliamentary government with a long track record. All British people speak the language of Shakespeare. All British people live in a democracy, and that's true whether you're from Romania and arrived here two years ago or whether you're a descendant of, of the 
the the, the bead or whatever, well, you know, the, the, the bead of 1,200 years ago. What Britain needs and what the United States also needs is a leader who will focus on the things of which Britain can be proud and which British people share instead of focusing on the things that divide British people. We in the United States are sending you a very bad example, um, but you've unfortunately followed on that example. <laughs> Jared Dunn, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.